This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. One of the biggest focuses as we get through this pandemic is food. The good news, Canadians are cooking up a storm, and hopefully at least some of that will stick when this is all over. And food supplies appear to be holding up after that wild period of empty shelves right at the beginning. But depending on where you shop, there are still sporadic shortages of certain things. All of this while producers have to dump certain goods because of the huge slowdown in demand from the restaurant sector. And people are worried about meat. The Cargill plant in Alberta started operating after a two-week shutdown amid nearly 900 cases of workers who tested positive. So with us to unpack all of that, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Dr. Mike von Masso, Associate Professor of Food, Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. And Dr. Evan Fraser, the Director of the Arrow Food Institute at the University of Guelph. Thank you all for joining us. Hello. Hey, good afternoon. Okay, let's start with Dr. Charlebois. So people are worried about this Cargill plant opening, especially uh, the union. In your view, uh, was it the right thing for them to reopen? Well, I, I haven't visited that plant in uh, in over five years. Uh, I had the pleasure to visit that plant once and Brooks a few times as well, which is uh, 100 kilometers away from there. It's uh, It's never a good sign when a union... Uh, shares its concerns with the media almost daily. Uh, something's going on there. Uh, we're not sure why, but of course it has become the, the largest outbreak in Canada related to COVID. So obviously numbers are scary. Uh, people in the community are probably very scared. Um, it, but the pressure is real. I mean, coming from uh, the beef industry, uh, that plant itself represents a huge portion of beef processing in Canada. And that's probably why Cargill is, is moving ahead with this, uh, uh, even if a lot of people are, are raising concerns. Uh, Dr. Von Masso, uh, we saw McDonald's, which gets most of its beef from there, say they're, they're going to get it elsewhere, or they did during the shutdown. Uh, does that mean there are a lot of other uh, possibilities for supply? Well, I think what that really demonstrates is the degree of integration in the global uh, market for beef. And, and one of the reasons we said generally that we didn't, notwithstanding the significant pain at the producer level, that we didn't think the closure would in the short term affect availability of meat is because uh, we can go to other sources when individual processing plants get shut down. And I think lots of, uh, uh, of retailers and food service providers are going with other services. McDonald's just had to make an explicit announcement because they've been very vocal in their support for Canadian beef. Uh, and and said we only serve Canadian beef to Canadians, and that's been impossible now in the short term. It's my my expectation they will go back to uh, 
back to the Canadian product as production gets ramped up again in this facility. Uh, Dr. Fraser, for people who are a little nervous about it, I know that when I'm at uh, the grocery store, there are certain meats where it's, it's noted what plant it comes from. I'm thinking of something like Smithfield chicken or whatever, but, but I can't tell if beef comes from Carville. Is there a, Cargill, excuse me. Is, is there a way that consumers can tell? Well, I mean, I think the main message I'd like to leave your listeners with is is that the Canadian public shouldn't really panic. And uh, no, the short answer to your question is you can't tell on the package where which plant your thing comes from. Yet, uh, you know, I think um, Sylvain, Mike, and I are all of the same opinion that, that the food system over the last month has suffered some enormous shocks and disruptions and yet has performed admirably well. Um, everyone from grocery store clerks up to CEOs and uh, meat plant operators uh, they, they, they have stepped up, and we always all owe them a, a debt of gratitude for, for doing that. So, and I don't, so I don't think there's cause for panic. Certainly, certainly this is a big disruption. The plant workers, uh, as Sylvan said, are scared, and rightfully so. The farmers are stressed because they're losing income. But from the perspective of the consumer, things are going reasonably well. Um, yeah. Libby, could I, could I jump sure? in there? Sorry. The, 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 the one point I would add to what, uh, to what uh, Evan just said is that we're not, we're not talking about a risk to the meat products that are coming out of that plant. We're not talking about a health risk of, uh, of that, that product that's coming to our grocery store shelves and then into our kitchens. What they're concerned about here is the safety of the workers. They've come up with protocols to, to improve safety, and, and some workers, as Evan said, are still concerned. But this isn't something that we need to worry about as consumers in terms of getting coronavirus from the beef that comes out of any individual plant. Yeah, that's a good point. There's, there's no evidence that the food itself is a vector for transmitting the disease. Okay. Actually, I don't think there's been a case reported in, in the entire world in terms of food safety is concerned. Yeah, that's my, under- that's my understanding yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh- so the the other question is why are there these sporadic shortages and why is it that farmers are having to dump certain goods? Uh, it, it, why is it so difficult to repackage or repurpose, you know, supply that was intended for restaurants and direct it to uh, consumers? Well, you want to answer that? I, I can start. Uh, I, the change was actually quite abrupt. Uh, that's that's one reason. Uh, food service completely disappeared almost overnight, and uh, that's ninety billion dollars worth of business a year in Canada. And I got transferred over to retail, and t- the two markets are very different. Um, a, a consumer walking into a restaurant will consume very different goods, different dishes than when you eat at home. Uh, I think we all can appreciate that. Uh, and so that's why there's been this, uh, this ma- because of this massive shift, you've seen uh, a lot of uh, farmers stuck with, with products they just can't sell. And, so this, and to be sorry, critical sorry. a little bit, I, I would say that I don't think we've actually ever thought about managing surpluses adequately or think strategically about value chain in this country. And, and, and COVID-19 is, is uh, brutally reminding us of that. Uh, can can you give me some examples of how people eat differently in restaurants than than they do at home? Fries, well, uh, sure. Fries are eating in a restaurant. 
Okay, yeah, okay, that's one. <laughs> but, but that's the, a very good I mean, as, as an example. Uh, to be for, okay, uh, one at a time. <laughs> we, we, drink, we drink much more milk at home than we do in restaurants. Most people don't drink a glass of milk in a restaurant. So there's a, there's a difference in the relative proportion. On the other side, we tend to eat more cheese, if you think about pizza, in, in, in restaurants than we do at home. So it's not just diverting individual products to different suppliers. Uh, it is also changing what we process that milk into to a degree. That's, that's one example. Um, chicken wings are eaten uh, almost exclusively exclusively in restaurants and not very much at home. We, we heard the issue last week with French fries and potatoes in eastern Canada. We eat far, I think 60% of the French fries we eat are in, in food service. So, so there, is a different, uh, there is a different sort of portfolio or, or at least emphasis on different products in different, uh, in different contexts. Okay, well, that that's interesting. Do people eat healthier at home? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I'm not uh, sure the we first couple of weeks, uh, because sure we mac and cheese and peanut butter were the most popular product, I would say no. But over this is we're in, we're in week eight here. I, I don't think we're eating the same way as week one. Let's put it this way. Oh, really? And do you have any uh, insight into what the differences are? I think it's acceptability. I mean, we have, I mean, let's put it, I mean, what the change we, we actually lived through eight weeks ago was violent, socially violent. And so, uh, of course, it took a lot, took some time for people to accept the fact that we're going to be confined at home for a while. And after a while, you think about food very differently, and you'll shop differently, and, and then you'll cook differently. Baking is a good example. A lot of people are baking, and that's why we have shortages of flour and yeast. And so it's, it's, it's just a different consumer, and we've, we've gone to, most of us anyways, have gone to accept the fact that we'll be home for a while. Uh, Dr. Fraser, uh, in, in terms of uh, the changes for what people were eating, and, and we saw these, you know, empty shelves at the beginning. I thought that part of it was, you know, in the, right at the beginning, the, the federal health minister said, go and make sure you have enough food for a couple of weeks. And, and then there was uh, uh, all that toilet paper nonsense on, on the Internet. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think we've got a couple of different waves of change. First of all was that panic buying. I think that's been dealt with. Second of all is the change in supply chain and the change in demand that uh, Sylvain and Mike are talking about. Now we're talking about sort of what, whether the supply chains that the farmers and the producers depend on in terms of labor and things like that can continue to function. That's sort of the third ripple effect. And the fourth one I think which we need to talk about, we haven't yet in this conversation, is the effect on food security. So not only have people experienced massive declines of wages through unemployment and lost jobs over the last six weeks. We're also probably going to see some level of food price inflation. Uh, Sylvain's the expert here and Mike are experts here. The expectation isn't terrible food price inflation, sort of unaccessible, but when you put food price inflation plus lost wages and unemployment together, you end up with a food security problem for many, many, many thousand Canadian households. And the data that I've seen suggests a two to three hundred percent increase in food bank use over the last six weeks. Uh, so federal government stepped up to help support food banks. But I think there's a, a hidden or almost hidden food security crisis that's driven both by 
lost wages, but also by probably some exacerbated by some food price inflation. And, uh, and, and I think Evan is exactly right there. And, and to a significant degree, the conversation in the last six, seven weeks has been about food availability uh, and not about access. And, and those income effects are significant. Uh, and, and even though the food is available, we, we might have reduced access and increased food insecurity because of the factors that, that Evan just raised. Um, Sylvain, you were talking about uh, reasonable things, reasonable ways to deal with the surplus. So is, is there any way to get some of that surplus food to people who need it? Well, so most groups uh, are, are, are already quite generous uh, and are giving to food banks uh, regularly, even before the crisis. Uh, I believe egg farmers are the most generous, along with the dairy farmers. Uh, it's just the surplus, surpluses have come really abruptly. And it's always difficult to manage millions and millions of liters of milk. There, there are technologies that do exist to preserve uh, these products. But, but again, in Canada, compared to, say, countries like Holland and Denmark, we've never thought about vertical coordination seriously. In other words, let, let's make problems, uh, let's make processors and farmers care about the same problems jointly, for example. And that's when you are forced to think about these things. And, and in Canada, it's always been farmers on the one side, processes on the other. Even with supply management, there is this huge uh, division between the two. And, and that's what we're seeing right now because there is a uh, bottleneck at one level uh, the victims are farmers. Farmers are stuck with the problem, and they're the ones looking bad. And that needs to be fixed. Let us start again with uh, Sylvain Charlebois. So is this cooking at home? Is it going to stick? <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question. So, yeah, I, I get asked that question a lot. Pre-COVID, uh, the average household was spending 36% of its food budget on food consumed outside the home. So at the restaurant, will we get back to 36%? Probably. The when, when is the big question. Uh, and frankly, I don't know. Uh, and cooking is a big part of that. Uh, uh, actually, tomorrow we're releasing a, uh, a report on, on, intent, on the intent to cook post-COVID. Numbers are pretty interesting, but we'll, we'll, they're just numbers. I mean, it's, it, at the end of the day, once we're done with this pandemic, people will go back to work and we'll go back to the gym and we'll do different activities. We'll travel again. And we're, right now, we're, we're nomads stuck at home. Well, so, so what are the numbers? Will that change? I, I'm not sure. Uh, what, what are the numbers of, of the intent? I'll tell you tomorrow. You okay, we'll have to wait. <laughs> we'll have to wait until tomorrow, uh, uh, Mike. I mean, is it a, also a matter that that a lot of people who uh, either had no skills or thought of themselves as having no skills have have acquired a few skills in the meantime, and I, uh, they'll just keep doing it. I, I think there's a there's a couple of things. I, I, I I've seen some stats uh, around about downloads from YouTube. Uh, on cooking lessons. So I think that, that uh, a, a lot of the education at home is not just for kids, but people are trying things 
uh, and and are being forced to. The degree to which that sticks, I think I agree with Sylvain, uh, will be uh, will be interesting to see. One thing is, in the medium term, we're not going to be able to get back to the level of eating out that we were before, because even as restaurants open uh, with physical distancing requirements, there will be lower capacity in, uh, in any dining rooms, probably about 50% of what was there before. Uh, and so, uh, and, and I expect that we'll see many restaurants not reopen, uh, and so availability will, will only come back relatively slowly. So it's not just whether we stick to it at home, it's whether the opportunity will exist for us to eat out as much as we did before. Uh, I think that the way people socialize might also change. Yesterday, I uh, socially distanced, talked to some of my neighbors who we're, we're very good friends with. We eat at each other's houses all the time, and they sort of said, well, when when the weather gets good enough so that we can eat outside, maybe we'll get together distance, but they're not going to be serving anybody and, and everybody will have to bring their own food or something like that. Do you, do you foresee changes in that and you sort of the etiquette of, of a dinner party or anything like that? Evan? Uh, yeah, I, well, the short answer is yes. And, and for exactly the reasons that you just said there, Libby, and, and I had almost identical experience yesterday where two of my best friends came over and we sat at different corners of the backyard, each nursing a beer that we brought from our own house on a chair that we brought from our own house. And uh, just before the lockdown <laughs> happened, I bought a very large piece of pork that is sitting in the freezer waiting for the time to do a great big pulled pork potluck. Uh, and I, have, I was thinking I'd take a hacksaw to it and maybe cut it into three or four smaller bits because it's way too big for my family to eat. Um, the other side of the coin, though, which I, I, anecdotally I'm, I'm seeing, is that kids are cooking a lot more. And uh, I've got three children downstairs. Suddenly they're all thrust to being menu planners uh, and cooks one day a week. And so there's a, a, an unintended benefit, perhaps, in terms of food literacy amongst younger people in this country who, you know, are, the parents, like myself, are mildly freaking out about how to keep them occupied and away from screens. Actually telling them to make dinner is a, is a pretty good part of the process. And I know a lot of parents that are, are, are using this as an opportunity to teach their kids how to cook or get their kids to teach themselves how to cook. Oh, I, I, I can feel a uh, junior chop challenge coming on. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, um, it, it, the whole thing is, is really interesting to me. And, and one of the social aspects I remember beforehand seeing shocking statistics, uh, never mind whether the food was takeout or, or cooked at home, that people were not, uh, families were not eating together which is, I think, bad. Is, is, is that going to change? Does anybody have a view on that? Well, like I said earlier, once we get to our busy lives again, uh, we'll, we'll see how, the, how that goes. Um, I mean, Evan, Evan raises a good point that there is this knowledge being transferred from one generation to another. Um, we actually came out with a report a couple of weeks ago. 95% of people born before 46 actually ate home cooked meals every day. Uh, that went down to 64% for Gen Xers, and millennials went down to 56%. And so we actually believe that perhaps COVID could reverse that trend uh, for the next generation. The kids at home uh, learning how to cook from the adults uh, may actually want to eat more 
home cooked meals. That is that is a possibility. Yeah, and, and I think that there there is evidence there that that as people develop the skills, they are more likely to continue to use them. And and this is an anecdotal example, uh, but. Uh, I mean, we ate as a family when my kids were growing up. We ate as a family at home uh, all the time when when we could, when we did, weren't somewhere for sports or something. But one of the things that I think was most valuable to my oldest son is he spent a summer working in a restaurant kitchen, and and the <laughs> skills he developed there in terms of cutting and cooking uh, have stuck with him, and he loves to cook, uh, and and will often sort of say, "Here's how you can do something better." So. <laughs> These skills that we're learning right now, uh, sort of, that are being inflicted on us, if you will, uh, by the circumstances, I think will stick with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that perhaps may not stick is, uh, you know, all those recipes using canned beans. I don't know about those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a work in progress. A work in progress. Uh, let's take one call. We still have a few minutes left from Diane in Mississauga. Hello, Diane. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. You're very welcome. I just would like to throw one little extra metric into the mix, which is food quality, I find, is starting to go down, particularly in some areas such as uh, eggs. I bought eggs. I mean, already the price is, is getting higher and higher for eggs. But I bought 18 eggs, and I ended up having to throw at least six of them away because they were, you know, not, not good. You broke the egg, and the yolk was broken right away. So, And I find in the packaging now, some of them are stamped and some of them aren't. And you go to the grocery store, and they have big signs, don't go through the eggs, you know, don't look in the box, just take them home. And nobody takes anything back anymore either. So if you take it home and you find out it's bad, you've just spent a lot of money on something that, you know, you can't really use. So that kind of I find disturbing. And, in fact, last week I was out at my regular shop, which is very reliable and has very good quality at all times, and I bought the uh, lean ground beef there. And I looked at it in the window. It kind of looked like it was perhaps a little bit fattier than normal. But I came home, made a burger, and my lean, lean ground beef actually shrunk down by half the size. So I'd say there's got to be at least 30% fat in there. Okay, Diane, uh, thanks for that. We'll run that by. And eggs, at my grocery store, there's a sign, only one uh, carton of eggs per customer. Is, is there an issue with eggs as we start to uh, think about wrapping up here? Well, there's I don't not think an issue, there's with, an issue eggs. with eggs. There's an issue with packaging. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to make the same point. And what's the issue with packaging? Well, we, we, again, when we sell to restaurants, we sell eggs in large flats rather than the rather than the boxes we get at uh, at the grocery store, and and so we, we've got lots of eggs. It's just getting it into the kinds of packaging. Uh, that we do sell for at retail stores. So that transition has taken some time. Many stores have enough. Some stores have some temporary shortages for the reasons we talked about demand, demand-based, not supply-based. But, but for eggs, it's, it's, it's almost exclusively the supply chain catching up with respect to having enough of the right kind of packaging. Okay, speaking of packaging, we only have, uh, you know, about a minute left, but that's one of the things that, you know, if, if we were all trying to go easy on the packaging and, and waste less and less plastic, it seems like all of that is out the window. Um, why don't we end with that sort of uh, 30 seconds each, uh, Sylvain? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I, I would say I don't think it's going to uh, depart. We're, we're probably going to go back to that debate, of course, because COVID came so quickly. Uh, it forced a lot of companies and, frankly, municipalities uh, to uh, to rescind and, and, and change, I, I guess, for a while. Uh, COVID is different. COVID is... Uh, is uh, yeah, it came really quickly, but I, I don't, I don't expect that debate to disappear. Okay, uh, now we're at ten seconds each, Mike. Well, I think uh, in times where we were uncertain about supply, although people like us were t- saying there was no uncertainty about supply, we're probably less discerning on some of the other things uh, that we that we cared about, and I expect that will come back. Evan, yeah, big research proposals and projects underway by colleagues at the University of Guelph and other places to figure out safe, affordable, cheap, uh, biodegradable forms of plastic uh, to do packaging in a, in a way that, that maintains food safety and, and perishability issues. And, uh, and that, those issues haven't gone away. They've just, um, we've just gone a little quiet for a little bit of time. Okay, well, let's hope so. Thank you so much, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Dr. Mike Von Masso, and Dr. Evan Fraser. Appreciate that. Interesting conversation on food. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for having us. Okay, bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.